Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read a few passages of Scripture or a few verses, and then I want to just kind of take you to the context. As we approach Easter, we're now in the time where next Sunday we, we will actually recognize Palm Sunday, the time when Jesus entered Jerusalem. And so what's about to take place in this entire time frame of Easter is that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. We mark that by Palm Sunday next week. As he enters Jerusalem, he's going to go straight to the temple. And how, how many of you know what he does when he first arrives at the church? He cleans house. He scatters the tables, the money changers. He throws them out, cracks a whip. As a matter of fact, Jesus does that twice in his ministry. He clears the temple when he first starts in the ministry, and he clears the temple the last week of his ministry. What's he telling the church? Clean house. And so after he's, as he leaves the temple, he goes back, and the Bible says, and Luke says that he goes back every night over to the Mount of Olives. He sleeps there, goes back, and he teaches in the temple every day. So in the next few days after he enters Jerusalem, he does that. And then on that incredible night, that Thursday evening, he has a dinner with his disciples. The Last Supper takes place, and Jesus exposes Judas as the traitor. Then they walk across the Kidron Valley over into a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where we have the story of Jesus praying and drops of blood dripping off of his head and his disciples falling asleep. And immediately, late in the night, that night, Jesus looks up and he sees torches and hears the rattle of swords, armor coming at him, and he is arrested, betrayed by Judas with a kiss. Jesus is taken immediately to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, Caiaphas, tries to try him in the middle of the night. He says, well, you know, let's send him over to Annas. Annas, another high priest. Caiaphas was the actual working high priest, but the one who, every, who everybody looked to. He was the, the, the big dog on the block, the guy that had been around for a while, Annas. He was the high priest that everybody recognized, and so they sent him to Annas' house. Annas, they tried to accuse Jesus of all kinds of things. He said he was the Son of God, and absolutely he was. They send him then to Pilate early in the morning on Friday morning. Pilate's not happy because it was very early in the morning. Pilate deals with him for a moment, says, I can't find much to wrong with him. And if you have the accusation that he is, it's a Jewish problem, send him to Herod. So he sends him over to Herod. Herod doesn't know what to do with him. Herod says, hey, perform a miracle for me. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? This is what you've sent me to. Jesus says, I'm the, are you the king? Jesus says, it is as you say. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate says, what do you want me to do with this guy? I can't find any fault in him. And the crowd chants, crucify him. Immediately, Pilate sends him to be scourged with 39 lashes. And after those lashes are laid upon the back of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they place a cross upon him and they force him to walk up Calvary where he is laid upon that wooden beam. and Nails are driven into his hands and feet, dropped into that hole, crucified. And we think about that entire story, and I, I, I did a rapid view of what that week is really like. We say, well, what does it matter? What, what, was, what took place at Calvary? And for the next few moments, I just want to bring to your attention the title of my message, Nailed to the Cross. How many of you remember that song, Nailed to the Cross? He was nailed to the cross for me. He was nailed to the cross for me. On the cross crucified for me, he died. He was nailed to the cross for me. It's an old song, old hymn. He was nailed to the cross. But what does that mean? So he was nailed to the cross. So what? What does that mean? Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you, speaking about us, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. 
having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Lord, let your word, Lord, go forth today. Let it challenge our hearts, inspire our minds, and correct, Lord, our actions. May your word, Lord, be anointed, Lord, as it, as it moves from my lips to the hearers in this room, Lord, and over the Internet. I pray, O oh God, that you would let your word, Lord, not return void to us today. Bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a little context about being nailed to the cross. When a, when a prisoner was taken, when a person who was found guilty and adjudicated guilty in the Roman days of a crime and they were sentenced to, sentenced to prison or to jail, they would take that individual, they would throw them into a cell and on the outside of that jail cell they would put a placard or a banner, a piece of paper that was called a certificate of debt. And on the outside of that prison door, that certificate of debt described what that person had been found guilty of. It also described the amount of punishment or the sentence that this person was required to have in order to pay off this guilt or this debt, the certificate of debt. Once a person had been in prison had gone to jail for that number of days or years or however long it was had been adjudicated, that certificate of debt was taken and it was marked paid in full. And it was taken to then the judge and the judge would notarize that and the individual who had spent time in that prison for that crime would take that certificate and they would hold on to it, and everywhere they went, they carried that certificate. Because if someone saw them on the street and they said, Hey, aren't you the thief that was sentenced to prison last year? And they would say, Yes, but I have paid that crime. Here is my certificate. It says that it has been paid in full. Now, God looked at the cross in a little bit more holistic way, in a in a greater way because it was a little bit different. You see, if a person in the Roman days had committed a capital offense and they were uh, sentenced to death, above the Roman cross there would be a placard just like if they were in jail and above the placard, the placard would state the guilt of their crime. The sentence was pretty obvious. It was death. When people walked by and they saw a person hanging upon a cross, they just had to look up on the sign and say, okay, I know what they're guilty of. I don't want to do that. Definitely don't want to try that. Well, definitely I get caught with that because if that's what happens, I don't want any part of it. The certificate of debt. From God's point of view, when Jesus was nailed upon the cross, it wasn't the complaint that, Jesus had done just any wrong. As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us that the, that the certificate of guilt that was written above Jesus and hung upon that cross, it said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. The guilt of Jesus Christ was that he was a king. That was his guilt. His guilt was absolutely true. But in God's view, it wasn't just that placard that the Romans had put there, but it was the law. It was the commandments of God, God's holy law, 
was placed above Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, He who knew no sin, which Jesus was perfect, he was innocent, God made him to be sin. He became sin. All of the things that you can do to break the Ten Commandments and the, and the laws and the statutes of God were placed upon Jesus, and he was adjudicated guilty for breaking all of them. He was nailed to that cross. The Romans, they said that he'd broken a law against Caesar, but actually Jesus didn't die for those laws. He died because of the laws that were broken against God. Sins, our sins, our crimes, our guilt. Jesus was in our place on that cross and if we were there, the law would be hanging over our heads. If we were placed upon the cross, that same law would be placed over our heads. Can you imagine being exposed to the world and every crime that you had been guilty of in your life, things that no one even knows were placed above your head? Can you imagine that? My friend, that's exactly the way God sees you. No sin is hidden from God's sight. Everything that you have ever done against God and against His law are weighed upon you because the, the certificate of death sets above your head. God sees it all. No one could have said, well, maybe I broke just a little bit. One guilt is all the guilt. And in the cross you find tragedy and you find triumph. The tragedy of that cruel cross, the the tragedy of the dirtiest deed ever done to one man, accused, falsely lied about, abused, tortured, mistreated, embarrassed, and finally killed. It's the tragedy of the cross, but let me tell you, friends, we are part of that tragedy. We are a part of it. It was our sins. It was our sins that were the nails. It was our hard hearts that were the, na- the hammers that drove the nails into the hands of our Lord and Savior. It was, it was us. We were a part of that tragedy of the cross. But we were also benefactors of the triumph of the cross. Jesus was not only nailed to the cross. He wasn't the only thing and the only one that was nailed to the cross. Look at verse 14 of Colossians that I read. It says that he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Nailing what? What did he nail to the cross? While Jesus was being crucified, here's what I want you to see. He was also, Jesus himself was also nailing some things to the cross. While the Romans were nailing our Lord and Savior to the cross, thinking that they were taking care of this criminal, Jesus himself was nailing some things to the cross. And that's what I want to remind you of this morning. I want to speak to you this morning just real quickly about six things that Jesus nailed to the cross. Six things he nailed to the cross. I want you to walk away from this service saying, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. The first thing that he nailed to the cross was the condemnation of sin. If you're taking notes, that's that first one. The condemnation of sin. Look at verse 13. You were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, and God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all of our sins. My sin, your sin, our sin, it was all nailed to the cross, friends. What does that mean? That means that the certificate of death that hung above all of our lives, that certificate that declared all of our guilt, that spoke about our punishment, that talked about our sin, it was nailed to the cross. And when He was buried, it was buried. That guilt was buried. Your sin was buried as it was buried when Jesus was put in that tomb into the sea of forgetfulness. God removed that sin as a part of your life. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later in that chapter, Paul says, Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? 
It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? He's not saying there may not be someone who might condemn. He's not saying that someone will try, might not try to condemn. He's saying who is, in, who is the person who is qualified to condemn someone for their sins and for their past and for their mistakes? Who's qualified to do that? And Paul answers his own question. Who is it? God alone. Only God. Because it is God who justifies. And when God looks at you and I who have seen, who have accepted Christ into our life, He does not see that certificate of debt and the guilt and the sin because He's justified us. He has transferred us from the, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He has made a decision about us and the verdict from the Supreme Court of Heaven will never be overturned. He is the one who has set you free from your sin and your guilt. Our sin was nailed to the cross by Jesus Christ. He did the work. While they were nailing His hands, what He was doing was He was taking down that certificate of death that's hung over your head and mine that declared all of our sins and all of our wrongs and the crimson blood that dripped out of His hands and His feet, He wrote on your life, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. You are no longer guilty. Now that doesn't mean that if you fail God, that He'll overlook it. He might just take you to the woodshed. Some of you know what that is. We didn't have a woodshed when I was growing up, but when Dad said, you go to my bedroom and you sit on the bed and you wait for me, you might as well fill it with, foot, with wood because that's what that was. That was the worst times of my young life was knowing that I had to go back there and sit in that bedroom and wait. Wait. Sometimes he'd make it a long wait, too. That was probably worse, and the anticipation was worse than the, than the whooping I got. Oh, we don't whoop kids anymore. I'm sorry. Than the positive enforcement that I got. I was positively reinforced from my backside. Once I received that reinforcement, Dad never condemned me. After the correction was over, he didn't hold that over my head. He just forgot about it. He disciplined me, he corrected me, and it was gone. That's the same way the Lord does you and I. It's the same way the Lord does does all of us. Because he has paid our sins. There is no condemnation for you from your past sins. And here's what I want you to understand, child of God. I want you to hear this. This is important. There's no condemnation even, even for future sin. Why? Because in the Lord's correction and His discipline, He corrects you. He does not condemn you. And if you continue to follow Him, His discipline may come, but His condemnation will not. He's not going to ever come to you and say, You followed me for 20 years. You should know better. I can't believe. I'm so disappointed in you. That may be the case because what you're going to say is, I have served the Lord 20 plus years. I should know better. We should know. The Lord does not condemn us. What does He do? He corrects us. So if you're in Christ, those sins are not marked up against you. But if you enjoy your sin and you're thinking, you think nothing about it, then number one, you may not have ever been saved in the first place. Or number two, you may be backsliding and you may need to change your compass before it's too late. The point is, is that child of God, friends, listen to me, church. You do not have to live under condemnation because Jesus nailed it to the cross. Sin, condemnation of sin was nailed to the cross. Number two, the curse of the law was nailed to the cross. Look at verse 14. 
having canceled the written code and its regulations that was, that was against us, that stood opposed to us. Not only condemnation, but the curse of the law. Now, I want you to understand something. What does he mean? The law is good. The law is good. It, the law, the Ten Commandments, the statutes that we see in the Scriptures, the Beatitudes, all of those things, that's all good. The instructions of the Lord Jesus are good. There's nothing wrong with Him and following them. It's God's code of conduct. The Bible, this, if you want to know how to live your daily life, this is it. It gives you every precept of how to live your life. What do you do with, when you have someone who, who hurts you? Well, how do you respond to that? What do you do when you're tempted? All of those things are found in God's Word. How you live your life godly, it's found in God's Word. It's God's law. It's God's code. It's God's way to live and way to behave. And it's without fault, but because of our sinful nature, because of who we are, it becomes a curse to us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, write this down. Those who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. When Jesus stretched out his hands and his feet upon that hellish cross, Jesus was made a curse because of the law. Like I said, the law is good. The Word of God is good. But here's the problem. If you try to live by the law in order to get to heaven, friend, you are still cursed. Because the wrath of God still rests upon you. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying this. I know some really good people. Good people. They're good. They're kind to people. They take care of their family. They don't cheat. They don't lie much. They don't steal. They do good things. They volunteer at the Salvation Army. They do all kinds of good, you know, civic duties. They're, they're good folks. The problem is, is if you say that I'm just going to be a good person, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to kill. I'm not going to murder. I'm not going to steal. If you just try to keep the Ten Commandments, that becomes your religion. And let me tell you something. Just being a good person is not good enough. There's a lot of good people, good folks that you'd like to, go hunting with or go play golf with. There's a lot of good people out there, but that's not enough because no matter how good you try to be, you still are living under a curse. That's what Paul says. You're still living under a curse. And here's how I know that I can prove it to you right now. Is there anyone in this room or anybody that you know that's not inside this room that you could ask them, you could say, hey, look, has there ever been a time when you've never had an evil thought? When you've never had a covetous thought, when you never uh, thought ill towards someone, when you've never lusted after something or you've never lied about anything or you've never taken something that wasn't yours, has there ever been a time when you didn't let pride rise up within you or you didn't become jealous or you didn't become vengeful? Has there ever been a time in your life where that has not been the case? You know what the answer for all of us, all of your friends outside the church today? Nope. No, and here's the problem, because here's the next thing. I'm not perfect, they'll say. I want you to listen to James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of what? Breaking all of it. Oh, but I'm not a murderer. It doesn't matter. You've broken the law. Well, it was just a small lie. You might as well have lied, the, told the biggest fib that you could ever imagine. Some people say, well, I don't understand that, Pastor. I mean, how does that work? Well, let me give you an illustration. Suppose you are hanging over a fire pit filled with fire, and you are held by a chain of forged steel. 
That chain's made of, of ten links. Nine of those links are heavy steel forged. But one of those links is made of plastic. It doesn't matter any difference which of the links breaks. What you're going to end up is in the fire. It doesn't matter. You go in the fire. Why? Because the chain must be perfect from top to bottom in order to keep you out of the flames of fire. And it's the same with God. Here's what God expects. Perfection. Oh, well, I'm not perfect. That's a great place to start. That's a good spot to be. To say, oh, I don't need God. I I can do it on my own. I'm a good person. That is a terrible position to be in because your pride has confused your righteousness to think that you can save yourself. Friends, you're like the man hanging from that chain and you've got lots of plastic links in your chain keeping you out of the fire. And it's only a matter of time. The law is a curse to us because we can't keep it. We are not perfect. And if you think you've got it all figured out and if you're good enough, oh, I'm a good husband, I'm a good wife, I take care of my kids, I go to work, I supply their needs, let me tell you, it's not enough. You are not perfect and neither am I. Heaven is a perfect place and the only way to get there is to be perfect and you can't get there on your own. That's the good news, is that Jesus took away the curse of the law. Jesus took away the requirement for you to be perfect. Because if you wanted to be perfect, guess what? You've already blown it. Nobody in the room is. Me too. Included. According to God's law, we all deserve hell. We all deserve uh, a punishment. But Jesus on that cross became a curse for us. And He died. He took the law. He took God's righteousness. He nailed it to the cross. And He freed me from trying to save myself by good works or religious duties or just attending church or being the right uh, type of neighbor. He freed Satan's hold over me and my imperfection over my own uh, uh, life. Now, I'm not saying that God's law isn't good. I'm not saying that you shouldn't live by the Word of God and you shouldn't live by the Ten Commandments, but you should never, ever, ever think that you can be able to be saved by your righteous actions and your righteous works. It will not happen. It requires the cross of Christ. And the only way that the cross is applied to your life and to mine is you have to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Not Bob or Sue or Sally is your Savior. Jesus is. Jesus canceled the curse of the law. Number three, he, the charms of this world were nailed to the cross. Look at verse 8 in Colossians chapter 2. Back up a few verses there. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tra- tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. That last line says, the basic principles of this world. There's a lot of things in this world that will try to charm you, won't they? A lot of enticements out there. A lot of things that appeal to us. When he talks about the world, he's not talking about the planet Earth. He's not talking about even the people in the Earth. He's talking about the system of the world. The system of the world that we are not to be a part of. First John chapter 2, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. He talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the, the cravings, there are sensual, sensual pleasures, what we really enjoy emotively. Lust of our eyes, the things that we see, that we want, that we crave. The pride of life, the self-pride, the self selfishness of our own selves. All of those things, the Scripture says in Colossians, that He nailed those to the cross. Those, those charming things of the world, He nailed the world to the cross. 
Let me just show you how the world was nailed to the cross. Go back, back to Galatians chapter 6. I'm walking you through an entire understanding of the cross today. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast, Paul says, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me. Who's been crucified? The world, the system of the world has been crucified to me, and not just that, and I to the world. So when Jesus died, he nailed not only sin to the cross, but he nailed the law to the cross. And the Bible clearly says that the world was crucified when Jesus died. How? What do you mean, Pastor? Well, when he died, the charms of the world and the pull and the tug of the world has been crucified as well. He broke that appeal that we have for the world. He broke that. He nailed that to the cross. He told the truth about the world that we live in. I don't know how many times I have ministered to people who have tried to find satisfaction and happiness in life. And they always run into a dead end. It always comes, they always come up empty handed or heartbroken. Their lives are an absolute mess. I know one individual, he's got children by four different women. He's tried to find pleasure in all of that. And you know what? It's not given him nothing but heartache. He's 40 something years old now, and he looks at his life, and I can talk to him, and I can see it in his eyes. He was, he was like, if only I made some better choices. If only the world wasn't so appealing to me. That was the curse, the, the appealing of the world. It, it's pull upon us, the charm of the world. I'll tell you something, if the world still has a pull upon you, if you still just absolutely love this world and the things that this world can give you, then what you have done, my friend, is you have failed to glory and to realize the power of the cross because it's the cross that breaks that appeal in your eyes and in your heart and in your mind. If some of you are still dealing with looking at the world and saying, man, if I could get this and if I could get that, then I would be happy. You have failed to glory in the cross of Christ who has crucified those appealings to us. The tug of the world. The older I get, I, I honestly can say, there's not much in this world that really appeals to me anymore. It's taken many years. Yes, the Lord Jesus crucified it a long time ago, but I am like Paul said, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm growing in faith every day. Even as a pastor, I grow in faith, and I look at the world and I say, there's not much here that I really want. Because it always ends up without a satisfaction that lasts. So if the world has charm on you, it shouldn't be that way. The world should be as charming to you as a dead corpse hanging upon a cross. That's about as appealing as it should be. So our sin, our charms of the world, law, it was nailed to the cross number four, is the corruption of our sinful nature. Go back to Second to Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11 says, In Him we were also circumcised in putting off the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. The cutting away, the cutting away of the sinful nature, the flesh. That is a, that is, it's an Old Testament symbol of God cutting away the flesh, the desires, the sinful heart of us, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your sinful nature, which means it still was there, it hadn't been cut away, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. When Jesus nailed the was nailed to the cross. He nailed our sinful nature to the cross. Before you were saved, you were obedient to nothing more 
than the cravings inside of you. You were what I like to call a sin addict. You liked it, you craved it, and you did it all the time. Nothing stopped you. You had no pause button. You had no control. You sinned willfully and joyfully because your sin nature was in charge. But when Jesus came and he died on the cross, not only did he take away our sin, but he died to take away our old nature. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says, These who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Christian friend, listen to me. If you still crave ungodly, wicked, unwholesome things, if you are craving things and you are still out of control and you just can't help yourself and you are addicted to the world, to things in the world, your behavior is the world that's just overflowing in your life. If you are addicted, then, then you have every reason to ask yourself, have I ever been born again? You have to ask yourself because the crucifixion, the cross of Christ that you take, as Paul says, I come, I, I take of the cross of Christ. I am crucified. The crucifixion of Christ means that he took, you took that sin, he took your, your sinful nature and your cravings, and he buried them. And that's exactly what baptism is all about. That's what he says there. That's what baptism is. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. What's that mean? Well, I'll tell you what that means. When you give your heart to Jesus, you're encouraged to get baptized. I remember when I was baptized. I remember just as a young boy, I'd given my heart to the Lord, and I said, hey, I want to be baptized. So I got ready. They put me in a little baptistry tank just like this. I walked down into the water. And what I was doing was I was showing, I was having a funeral. There was a funeral for old Scott that day. Scott's funeral, you see, I've already had a funeral. I don't know if you know that. I've already been buried in a watery grave. It was a liquid tomb. That was my funeral. And the only mourner that showed up at my funeral was the devil himself. He was the only one that was, that was sad about that because he and I were pretty good buddies before then. And when I was buried in baptism in that pool of water, taken beneath the water, the old flesh, the old man, the symbol of what the cross had done in me was buried and the new person came up out of the water. I was different. That's why Romans 6, 6 says that for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. No longer was Scott a slave to be able out, to be out of control, to just to, to sin with willing, willingly and willfully with excitement. No longer because I had traded that old life and that old self for something new. I had traded it for the precious cross of Christ. So we were crucified. Jesus crucified our sinful nature. Number five, he crucified the control of the devil over us. Verse 15, he disarmed the powers and the authorities. What's he talking about? Well, you know in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle against flesh, don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You have, a, you have a, a, an arch enemy. His name is Satan. And when Jesus was put on the cross, Satan thought he was winning. He thought he was going to destroy Jesus. But in turn, really what Jesus was doing, he was destroying Satan. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says that he too shared in our humility so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. When, when Jesus died on the cross, the devil said, Ha ha, I got him. And really what was happening was Jesus was saying, No, devil. You're the one that's finished, not me. You're the one that's finished. 
The cross is judgment upon Satan. It's judgment upon the devil, the enemy of your soul. John 12, 31 says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Satan himself. Jesus nailed Satan to the cross that day. What an exciting thought. It's the physical body of the Lord Jesus was nailed upon the cross for our salvation. He nailed the old devil to that cross and he said, You thought you won, my friend. You're stuck. You are done for. You have been destroyed, disarmed. That Greek word for destroyed there in Colossians means to make, to make none effective. To make no effect. It doesn't mean that he obliterated him, that he, that, he, that he totally annihilated him, that he doesn't exist. What it means is he wiped him out. He put him out of business. Jesus put the devil out of business on that day in Calvary. He, he disarmed him. He pulled his teeth. And that's why we can say we are overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testament because of what the Christ has done. Let me close with this. Number six, Jesus nailed to the cross the conquest of death. When Jesus died on the cross, death died. Now, I want you to pause and think about that. Death has been the plague of humankind since Adam and Eve. We don't think a lot about death. Although I believe over the last couple of years it has become a more apparent topic of thought. I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually think it's a good thing. You don't have to become morose or morbid. But you have to be aware that you and I, my friends, no matter how old you are, if you're in your 80s or if you're in your teens, you will not live forever. You will one day die. Someone will throw dirt in your face, say a few words, and walk away. And that will be it. It's over. It's done. You and I, my friends, will one day die. We will cease to exist. Not many of us will have books written about us. Not many of us will have written books about ourselves. And the only markers that will be left will be the memories in the, those who you knew and in the stone marking of a tombstone etched with your years. But make no mistake, you and I will die. It's something that we must confront. It's something that you must think about. But on that cross, death died that day, and I'll tell you why. Because in verse 12, look what he says having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. Death was crucified that day. He crucified our sin. He crucified condemnation. He crucified the law. He crucified the flesh. He crucified the world's pull. He crucified the, the devil. And death was crucified that day. What a powerful vault. We don't have to be afraid of it anymore because of Jesus. You don't have to wonder what's going to happen when you die because of Jesus, because of the cross. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. By his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. When they said Jesus was dying, actually what they were saying was death was dying. They got it wrong because Jesus would soon live. The power of death died. Regina, could you come? So what does that mean for us today? Let me close with this. It means, number one, I don't have to be a slave to sin, and neither do you. Number two, I don't have to be condemned by the law. I don't have to fall apart every time I make a mistake. I desire perfection, but I know I'm not perfect. Jesus makes up the difference. 
Number three, I don't have to be conformed to the world. I don't have to look like the world. I don't have to act like the world in order for me to enjoy my life and to be satisfied in life. Number four, I don't have to be motivated by my sinful nature, by my flesh. I don't have to just do because I desire like some animal. I don't have to be bullied by the devil anymore, praise God. And finally, I don't have to be afraid or intimidated by death. Not if you know Jesus. Not if you know the Lord. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask this question. Is there anybody here today who have a certain sin of your past that just haunts you? It's what I like to call your ghost of guilt. Something that you've done. Failure you've had. That you just can't get past. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here and the law is condemning for you. You're saying, oh man, I just can't live up to the law of God. I can't live up to the law of God. Can I just release you from that and say, it's not your ability. It's the work of God in you. Is there anybody that the world is just continuing to pull at you? Or maybe that natural tendency inside of you that just comes out of nowhere that you feel it pushing you toward something that's displeasing to God. Is there a devilish power that seems to come against you and try to control your life? Or maybe the fear of death is bothering you. In any case, friends, listen to me. Jesus has nailed those things to the cross. He's nailed them to the cross. And because of that cross, you've been free from those things. Before I dismiss this morning, I want to ask the question, is there anyone in this room who would say, Pastor, I answered in the affirmative to one of those questions. I want you to just pray for me today. If there's anybody in this room, before we go, I just want to pray for you that you'd say, Pastor, I did. I, I, I am dealing with some of those things in my life. Would you pray for me? Would you just raise your hand right now? Anybody in this room? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? You can put your hand down. I'm so thankful for the cross, what Jesus did. It's important for you not only to understand, but to walk in it. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray over you. And as I pray, those of you who raised your hands, here's what I want you to do. I want to say, I want you to just encourage you to do this as you pray. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for your cross. I accept your work. I accept what you say about me. My sins have been forgiven. Now they're gone. Lord, I know I'm not perfect. Lord, help me to continue to walk in your way. Lord, help me, Lord, not to feel that tug anymore. Help me not to have that push from my own self to try to be something that, that is displeasing to you. Lord, don't let me be afraid of the devil or don't let me be scared by death. If, that, if any of those of you just say, Lord, I, I pray that I would see the cross today. I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to pray in your own way. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your gentle whisper today, for your touch, Lord God, in our lives. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit that we feel in this place today. I thank you for your word, Lord God, that does not return void. And I pray that, God, that you would have helped us today to understand the glory of the cross, what you did, what you did and what it means to us. I pray for every friend, Lord, every man and woman who are here today who raise their hands. Lord, you know exactly why they raise their hands. You know, Lord, what they're dealing with in their own spirit. You spoke to them today. I ask that, Lord, that you would show them your grace. 
and that you would encourage them and then when they leave this place today that they would glory in the cross that they wouldn't be afraid of you they wouldn't be fearful Lord that they would approach you Lord with complete honesty and they would say Lord help me to be all that you want me to be help me to see the cross of Christ help me to see what I have already gained and what is mine and what privileges are mine because of the cross Lord, I thank you, Lord, for you're doing the work here. I thank you for doing it, Lord God, in our own lives. I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. And exchange it someday for a crown. And so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down oh I love this part so I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange them someday for a crown. Lord, may you bless us and keep us. May you cause your face to shine upon your people today. Touch those who are ill and sick in body. Lord, we have numerous, Lord God, who, Lord, are physically, Lord God, sick today. I pray that you would touch their families. Lord, be with them. Watch over them, God, and encourage them. Increase their health. Father, let your hand of blessing be upon us as we go from this house today. And Lord, may we walk according to your spirit. Fill us, Lord, with your presence and your glory. And Lord, may we cling to the old rugged cross. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at 1030.